Hey folks, it's Brad Shoemaker at GiantBomb.com. Ben Pack is here. Hi. How's it going? Good, how are you? Uh, I'm good, because we are joined by a very special guest today, the god of God of War himself, Corey Barlog. How's it going, man? Fantastic. How you yeah, doing? Yeah, pretty good. Just came off a weekend of playing God of War, so, you know, <sighs> feeling... Uh, I, I did have, like, a kind of a just increased, like, my shoulders were forward while I was walking. I felt, like, more powerful just playing it. Puffing your chest out yeah. a little bit more. Uh, so, yeah, we're recording this, uh, let's say, 72-ish plus hours since the game came out. Yes. Uh seems like it's been an emotional few days. It really has. For you and, and your team. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, we just... Uh, on the twentieth, we actually had our our rap party, so that was really great to see the team so happy. Where does where does the God of War team get to have a rap party? Um, there was a, a club down in in Hollywood that uh, the studio rented out and got everybody together, and and this was people from the San Diego studios, from uh, BBH, the the advertising agency we worked with. It was literally. Uh, a fantastic cast of characters that I've run into throughout these five years. And it was the one time we were all happy at the same time. <laughs> uh, I, I'm probably the instigator of making people dissatisfied uh, periodically throughout this process, but I, everybody was happy. I hear it's been a long road. I mean, <laughs> you know, that the, the video of you has kind of gone somewhat viral, let's, let's say. Which one is that? The the little kind of let's check out review scores video. Oh, yeah. Is, is, oh. Is, just yeah, about, it's about to hit a million views on YouTube. So. I know how. Wow. What what uh, what made you want to record that? Did, did that just pop into your head, or was that a way of getting through the nerves? You know, interestingly, the first was just because I fell in love with reaction videos. Like uh, after E three twenty sixteen, you know, we 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 sort of exist in this vacuum when we make games, so we get to hear a little bit at the time, and you see the reviews or anything like that. But to actually see people. Like watching what you're doing is amazing. It is a little bit of a glimpse inside of the playtest process. So the Easy Allies one from 2016 kind of kicked off this weird addiction that I had for for years. And everybody on the team, I mean, I swear we were just consuming all of those um, because it's so great to see. Oh, that moment didn't work, or that moment worked. You'd, you'd watch them and you go, Oh, they didn't react at all there. Hmm. And then you see, you know, I, everyone's reacting to that one. The the moment when Atreus accidentally shoots Kratos. Uh, in the E3 2016, a lot of people on the team were very against that and kept telling me, take it out. It's stupid. You know, it's, no, nobody's going to appreciate it. They're going to go, it's going to, they're going to hate it. Right. And then everybody laughs, like everybody laughs at that moment, which is crazy because that's not actually what I was going for, but it still was interesting that it worked. If it works, it works. Right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, those, those reaction videos are just invaluable for us. So I thought, oh, you know what? This is a big moment, and I'm, I have a ritual of any time reviews come out, I sort of sequester myself away anyway. I just want to be away from people. So it's either in my office or, uh, in this case, I was in, in Sydney. So I was in a hotel. So I was like, you know, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I'll, I'll record it. Who knows? Maybe it'll be good. It'll be bad. But I mean, if the reviews are bad, like, you know, it'll just be me, like, complaining and, you know, <laughs> whining or whatever. Uh, but it, I didn't intend on anybody ever seeing it. Uh, so it sort of, it took me off guard, the uh, sort of, the reviews themselves. So it was kind of cool. Um, but I had not planned on showing anybody. Uh, and then I did that interview with skill up and I, <laughs> I just sort of let it slip that I was doing that. I was like, Oh great. Now I kind of probably have to show it, but I still was on the fence. And uh, I'd sort of remembered when I was in, in Gothenburg um, in between. So I went to Norway, we did that event. And then I went to Gothenburg and spent three days with my family and then came out to, to Sydney and I hadn't seen my family since January. So my son and wife had been in Sweden since January. And I was just missing them terribly. But uh, there was a moment in the hotel room where uh, my son realized that I was going on a plane the next day, that I was going to leave. And he started getting really sad. And he started buried his head in, in my wife's chest for a second and then just got up and went into the other room and closed the door. And I was like, oh, what's going on? And she's like, yeah, he's doing this a lot now. Like he's... I don't know if he's ashamed or if he's, he just doesn't want us to see that he's sad, but he just, he doesn't want me to be around during this. And I was like, oh, that's terrible because we've been talking about this to him. So I tried to go in the door and uh, comfort him and he just screamed at me, get out. So that sort of, I mean, that stuck with me. And then when I sort of rewatched the video, I realized like this could be a cool teaching moment for him. Uh, and, Unfortunately, he's so emotional right now that my wife doesn't want to show it to him. And it's a good move. Like Save it until he's older. Yeah, well, probably when they come home. Like, because they've been staying at her, her mom's house since January because we're dealing with a bunch of stuff with the house. Um, 
So I think when he gets back and it feels a little bit more comfortable, I'm going to sit and talk to him about it. Uh, but yeah, I honestly didn't really expect. I, I was being genuine when I said 50 yeah. people would watch this because it's, it's a little bit of a downer, I well, guess. It, it comes off as genuine for sure. I mean, it seems like that that type of weeping, let's say, only only follows like a genuine amount of yeah. strife and, and, yeah. and toil, right? I yeah. mean, like you mentioned in the video, like five five years of work. Yeah. Like you've, you've been on this for a long time. Uh, I, I kind of, I want to talk about you having been on a God of War game and then leaving and then coming back. But yeah. Before that, I'm kind of curious if you could sort of take us through your years in the wilderness in between. Ah. Because you left and like, I feel like it was reported like, oh, he's going off to work with George Miller. He's he's a Hollywood guy now in movies. And like, I I don't know how much you want to say about that stuff, but I'm curious how that informed like the way you look at at developing games and and what you got out of that experience before before you came back to this. I was fundamentally changed by it. Like it's, it was amazing. It was something that I needed to do, I think, uh, a lot of people, especially a puppet named Marcus, said I was doing something stupid. Uh, but I think, for me, I realized that if I just stayed and kept making God of War games, I don't think creatively I would have grown. Like, I needed to work with other people who challenged me and showed me something different, right? And finishing God of War 2, uh, I just had this weird, uh, surprising event of um, the one of the guys I knew from CAA was saying, hey, George Miller's in town and he's meeting with a bunch of game developers. Um, I'm like, oh, okay, uh, that's awesome. And I just thought it was a random update he was giving me. He's like, no, 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 come in. Like, like he's he's leaving tomorrow. He he agreed to take one more meeting. I'm like, I don't, I don't understand. What do you want me to do? Dance like a monkey? I don't get it. Like, like what do you? Uh, like, I'd love to hang out and talk movies with him, but I, is that what you want? And he's like, no, just show him the beginning of the game. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. So I just gave him a demo at the beginning of the game for this half hour meeting that turned into like three hours because then afterwards he just started talking to me about stuff, asking stuff, and I was telling him about how his movie, or at least his facet of Twilight Zone, fucked me up for flying for life. Like, I was just like, every time I'm on a plane, I look out to the wing and think there's a little did gremlin he do, did on he do there. The gremlin on the wing one? Yeah, oh, that wow. was him. Yeah, and I was like, thanks, thanks, buddy. That one sticks uh, with you. <laughs> yeah, right? That is just disturbing. And, uh, you know, he was just like this fantastic knowledgeable wizard right that just uh was able to hang out with me for a little bit and we were talking about everything tv shows movies games the influences we've had the fact that i did some acting when i was a kid and uh at the end of it i was just like oh, okay cool that's probably the last time i'll ever see this person uh and then he's like no let's do something together you know let's let's uh let's make a mad max game or something you know let's let's just keep talking and then that keep talking kind of started this friendship for years uh, and we were starting to develop a, a Mad Max game while at the same time I was consulting. So, I mean, I had some weird experiences with that. I met some some German guy uh, that actually was had the rights to uh, this, this like, early Zachariah Sitchin stuff. I'm trying to remember the name of the, the, the novelist. He's this guy from the 60s that uh, used to be a hotel uh, connoisseur that, that basically, uh, he wrote Chariots of the Gods, and he, they had the rights to his stuff, and they were going to make a game of it, and they wanted me to help them out. And so I was like, all right, cool. This all took place on a yacht in Monte Carlo. <laughs> okay. I, I, I'm not kidding. Like, like, like literally designing a game with a bunch of Italians and this German guy. All They were speaking Italian, and then the German guy was speaking Italian with them, and they're shouting at each other. And they said, no, no, this is friendly. This is all good. Uh, <laughs> it's just very European. Yeah, super European. And we're just, I mean, it was just the weirdest, most disturbing thing. I don't know if the project ever really went anywhere after I was involved. It was a very short period of time. But even that taught me something. I learned a little bit about how to communicate with people and kind of work with some crazy expectations. You know, I think they were still so early, they didn't really know what they wanted. So I think bringing on a a designer that early was more just helping them with a concept. Um, But, you know, I was at LucasArts for a little bit, learned a ton from them, Uh, got to go to the ranch and do a story conference about Star Wars characters with a ton of really good writers who were developing a TV show for him. And they had developed like 50 episodes. So they'd written like 50 episodes and they were not even pitching this, the, the show around. And it was a really cool thing to to kind of absorb what their process was. And I mean, this is a, David Rambo was the showrunner for CSI, the original CSI. And Matthew Graham created Life on Mars, that, that UK show about the cop who ends up back in the 70s. This is um, that guy's name, really Rambo. 
Uh, yeah, David Rambo, that's, right? That's, it's really that's wild. incredible. Yeah, yeah it's like it was, the most not fake first name and the most fake last name. <laughs> right, it was fantastic. Yeah, he was he was really smart. That dude was just on point, and like, literally everybody. That Lisa Randolph was a head writer on the Shield, and I had oh. just been getting through a lot of the Shield, and I was like, my God, you're awesome. Uh, and I was, you know, just some idiot from games hanging out with all these really talented showrunners and writers in a room for two days with George Lucas talking about the creating of Star Wars characters, right? And I had. Uh, uh, Ron Moore actually wrote one of the episodes as well. And I had this moment at, where I had suggested something. And I was like, oh, yeah, you could really, you could do this. It was something about one of the characters. And I, I had made a connection between something. And I thought, you could really expand upon this. And I made two suggestions. And George just kind of deadpan looks at me. Okay. And then moves on. And everyone's talking. <laughs> and I'm just like, and everyone else is looking around. And they're kind of looking over at me. And I'm just like, uh, did I just screw up? Did I just, am, I not, am I getting disinvited after this? So then uh, we take a break, and I go outside for a smoke, and one of the guys comes out, and he says, all right, congratulations, so you're in now. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, you've been Georged. I'm like, oh, what, what are you talking about? He's like, oh, he just does that. Like, he just lets you know. Like, like uh, put, uh, it's not putting you in your place, but it's that kind of like, you know, keeping you in uh, understanding who's in charge there, right? George Lewis' uh, version of jumping you in. <laughs> right, yeah. And I de- definitely felt like that. And, I, and basically it had happened to Ron Moore, I think, the same thing, where it was like, the suggestion you make is like, yeah, ignored. And then I guess the part I left out of that story was that somebody followed up five minutes later saying exactly what I said. And he goes, no, that's good. That's good. Let's do that. Write that on the board. I was like, dude, seriously? It just depends just... on when you catch him. Right. And then after that, then we started, you know, the next day it was, uh, you know, the bonding experience of talking about the South Park guys and him recounting how horrified he was that they had him and Stephen raping Harrison, you know, in that episode. And he's just, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I was like, why don't you say something to him? Why don't you fire back? He's like, George Lucas, you don't fire back. Uh, They have a microphone every week. You don't fire back at those guys. You just keep quiet and you take it. I'm like, dude, you're George Lucas. I'm pretty sure like you own everything at this point, right? (laughs) You probably own them. Right. Like literally we're at lunch and he's just talking about, you know, having, having a conversation with Arnold when he was the governor, like I would talk about, you know, somebody I ran into on the street, like his life is so vastly different. I had no way to understand how to connect with him, except just to go like, hey, this is so great. Uh, so, you know, after that, uh, continued kind of the, the back and forth relationship with George. Um, and even though the, the thing we worked on for years, you know, we spent several years in a conference room, just writing up stuff for what this game would be. And, you know, at one point I was believing some of the characters I was going to write were going to end up like in the universe of Mad Max, right? Which is just awesome, right? That's childhood dream. Um, but even through all that time, the people he surrounds himself with just educated me so much on storytelling, on character development. Just sitting and hanging out in a conference room with him when we were stuck on an idea. And he'd just talk about, you know, something he'd seen recently, a book he'd read, and then his perspective on it. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, I'm learning more in five minutes with you than I learned in all my three years of college, right, about film directing. It's just ridiculous. Um, I wouldn't trade that for anything, even though I didn't ship anything during that period of time. Nothing, right? I learned that I I know nothing and that I have a lot to learn. And I think I became a better writer for sure and a better director just hanging out with him. And then, you know, realized, all right, well, the the journey has almost come to an end where they're kind of moving on. Fury Road is going to kick into full production in Namibia. And, you know, the, the game kind of, took off where it was going to take off with Avalanche. And, you know, in their own right, they did a, a really cool thing. Um, it was not what we were going to end up doing, but still they, they kind of put their stamp on it. And I think they're, they're amazing. I mean, I met my wife at Avalanche. She was a producer on Mad Max. Um, so she is uh, definitely the, the driving factor and motivation for a lot of the things that I'm doing. Uh, but amazing that that connection came from meeting George. Um, and so I kind of left there and, took a job over at Crystal Dynamics and I was going to do the follow-up for the Tomb Raider reboot that they were doing. So they were still in the midst of of making the game and they kind of brought me on really early. Um, and I don't know if they knew this in advance. Uh, they say they didn't, uh, but they had lost their cinematics director. So the cinematics were essentially just a bunch of Lego pieces laying on the floor and they were like, yeah, we kind of need you to fill in and, and, and finish this off. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. No problem. It's weird uh, to do cinematics and not have control over the story though. I have a had a difficult time with that, but I, I just sort of dealt with it and kind of worked with them. They were great kind guys. Of feel like you're telling somebody else's story. Yeah. 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 And it's like, there's so much emotion charged with where they were at. So I pressed a little bit on it when I first got there, but I realized like, look, 
uh, Noah is really good as the creative director. They have a lot of very talented people. So I'm going to trust, stand back, and just kind of push these cinematics through, work with everybody, and try to get them the best that they can be. And it was an amazing crew that made those cinematics, so it made it fairly easy. And then kind of started to think about what the next one would be and, you know, made a few pitches to people and talked about that no-cut camera and the no cinematics. So at the time, it was far more ambitious. The the no-cut camera was, was I want to do something sort of like the theater in the round thing of you go to a house and around you at all times, the play is happening. Wherever you go, stand, whoever you talk to, you're consuming a piece of the play, but there is no fixed go here, then go here. There is no driving force to move around. You could literally stand and talk to one person the whole time and then come back and talk to another person the next week and you'd experience something different. It was just that it would always be happening everywhere and you'd kind of have to be in control of what you'd want to see. It's pretty ambitious to do that in games because you're basically saying it's okay to miss like 80% of the work that you do. And that's, that's a hard sell on people to begin with. Uh, but then also to say, and by the way, you're never going to cut away in the camera. It's going to be all one big one. Or, uh, I think for them, they were just, okay, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. crazy. Um, but I th- they did such an amazing job on the first game that I started really thinking, like, look, where I would go with this would almost be bad because I just started. They just got this reboot, and, it, and it's on its sea legs. And what they need to do is take that next step, right? And the next step, well, great, wasn't exactly the creative sort of like, yeah, I'm supercharged about this. Um, I I knew that if I was going to dig into something and spend years on it, it had to mean something. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do something bigger and put my own stamp on it. So I had been talking to Shannon Studsill, the head of the studio, for a while, just as like keeping tabs, you know, like, hey, how's it going? Things are going good. Uh, and right before Ascension release, we started really getting serious about the conversation of coming back and... I was kicking around a few ideas. My son was, I think, eight months old at the time. So some of those ideas started to kick around my head and was remembering that God of War Director's Live thing that we had done in 2010 or 2011, where even then we sort of faced and admitted that we hadn't pushed the franchise very far. We hadn't dug deep in the the, the sort of emotional core of the story. We just sort of pressed the same vengeance button, wife and child dead button, right, over and over again because it worked, right? And... Perhaps we were a little lazy uh, on my part. I think others were just like, hey, maybe I have a different idea to it. But I think there is where I realized we need to do something different. Jeff, he had a fantastic comment on it when he was talking about, um, he's like, yeah, you really didn't. Some way he was he was letting me know that I hadn't really pushed very far. He's like, you know, Peter Parker was responsible for Uncle Ben's death, but you don't hear him bitching about it all the time. <laughs> and I was like, man, that is so right. Uh, and, I, and I realized like, okay, from what I had learned throughout my travels, uh, and then also that that idea that, hey, they're looking for something big in the change department, right? Like they were thinking maybe God of War might not even be something we need to make again uh, because the reception wasn't that great on Ascension. Um, and I was like, no, 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 no. I think there's something cool, and, and I want Kratos to be involved in this. And I want him to be involved with it because I don't – I want to use that first seven games as like the backstory, God, was the prologue. Yeah. That's well, I mean, if you count the uh, sure, yeah. the betrayal cell phone game, which right. I never forget that one, man. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it's seven games. Wow. Crazy. Yeah. Those, those PSP games actually were really good. I actually wrote Ghost of Sparta right after I left uh, from three. So I finished the script for three. We had laid out the structure of the whole game. And I was like, all right, if I'm going to go, this is the time to go because everything's set up for you guys. You can just kind of go. Right, and they're going to put the stamp on it. Stig really made that game his own, and did something absolutely amazing with those guys. Um, but then afterwards, I was like, "Oh yeah, you know what? They wanted me to do something else on the franchise." I was like, "I can write a script because that's a little bit easier, right? I can start consulting with other people and then kind of write that one." And turned out actually to me one of the, my favorite God of War stories to that point. Like now, this one is my favorite sure. of all of them. But yeah, that one was a lot of fun, and it was because the original God of War three script was not about Pandora. It was about Deimos. So it was about uh, the relationship between the brothers and the whole thing kind of was rooted in this idea of Kratos going to kill his father but discovering what his father had done to his brother. Uh, and, you know, they said, oh, we're getting rid of the brother thing and we're going to do something else. We're going to Pandora, which is essentially a proxy for Calliope. Uh, and I was like, cool, can I take that then? Can I <laughs> can I take my original story and take it back and make it for Ghost of Sparta? And they were, that's good. So... That worked out really well for yeah. everybody, I think. 
uh, maybe maybe just because I just played through this part last night and it's uh, still fresh on my mind. But the when you're in the lake area and he's telling stories in the boat and he tells the parable about the horse and the stag, yes. uh, about getting revenge and the costs like that seemed very much, you know, like in the context of Kratos being this kind of one note rage monster for seven games or whatever, like that almost to me felt like a direct response yeah. to that kind of thing. Yeah, there's um, a lot of that in there where we're sometimes even communicating directly to fans or critics, right? Yeah. So, so like when you came back to the studio, like when you talk about getting back in touch with the leadership of Santa Monica, did you, how long did it take after you came back before you guys really had the direction down before you had the vision? Like, you know, like the Norse, Norse milieu and like father and son mm. tale and kind of all the things that have changed about this that frankly you kind of needed to justify another God of war. Yeah. Like how long did it take to get all that stuff uh, in place? I think it probably was around 10 months. We had some of the high level. Like I said, that I knew the father-son story was a part of the the the, the story, no matter what. This was going to be about that. Uh, in fact, there was one point where I had been, you know, soft-selling people on it, talking about it, becoming, letting it be part of a conversation. And then Eric Williams is in the room with uh, everybody. I had actually been out of the room, so it's, you know, 10 people in there, and they're just like, I don't get it. Why are we doing this? It's Kratos and he has a son. This is ridiculous. Low wolf and cub. And then Eric just goes, look, Corey's had a kid and this is going to help influence some really cool stuff. So deal with it. Right. This is what we're doing. And I was just like, oh, that's awesome. Right. And he's Eric Williams has this way of just being so completely definitive about something that even the, the hardened skeptic goes, oh, OK. Right. He's like that stern principle. Right. And when he, I mean, and this is with me as well. Like when I'm completely dead set on something and then he comes in and he's like, you're an idiot. And this is why you're an idiot. I'm going to break it down into three simple steps. And they're so clean and so perfect that I have no argument. I'm just, ah, you suck. Fine. Uh, and it, it turns out a lot of the times he's right. Right. He's one of the few people in this business that I completely creatively trust. Right. He built Kratos in the first game. Uh, when we worked together back at the, you know, Paradox Development, making backyard wrestling and X-Men fighting games and Rock'em Sock'em robots, uh, he was still like that person that we would fight, but at the end of every fight, we would have this amazing sense of clarity, right? And, you know, when we kind of got pieces of it together, I think in, in 10 months, but uh, I mean, the visual direction of the game didn't come together until maybe year three and a half. Like we really... We stalled a lot on that, and part of it was because the engine wasn't done. We didn't have a lighting engine. A lot of people say, oh, the downgrade, you know, E3 2016, the downgrade of the final one, right? And it's, it bums me out because I think people are so used to being taken advantage of, or they think they're being taken advantage of, so they just feel like everybody's out to get them. And far be it for me to, to disagree. I'm the most paranoid person on the planet. I think everybody's out to get me. But when it comes to making games, like, nobody's nobody's out to get anybody. They're out to impress, you know? Like, like every game developer wants people to like their game so they do every possible thing they can to make it as good as possible and it turned out that in 2016 50 percent of our rendering engine was done and maybe 20 percent of our lighting engine was done so by the time we got to the end we had everything dialed in but it looked different right uh and i think a lot of people were very uh uncomfortable with that but i hope when they play the final game like a lot of people were seeing like oh that's cool like they put everything they have into this right and that's truly I have never worked with a more passionate group of people than the people at Santa Monica. You know, like part of us is we have something to prove, right? Because we got knocked down twice, right? Ascension got knocked us down and then the cancellation. Two knockdowns, man. We were we were staggering and we were trying to figure out who we were and, and, and what that moment was we used to have, which was everybody at the office at 3 a.m. because they want to be there, because they're excited, playing through the build for the 50th time, not because someone's making them, but because they're like, oh, I just want to see what's going on in the next thing. You know, I'm really excited to see what someone's working on. We sort of lost that. We lost what it was to love making games, and getting that back took a, a long time. And I think it was figuring out each piece and people being a part of that, saying, oh, okay, this is what we're going to do. But the Norse thing to really circle all the way back around to one part. Um, that was really close to the the time when we inherited the, the whole team. I think that a lot of those things I had to force, my hand was forced. <laughs> I was like, you're getting a lot of people. You need to figure this out now. And we had just been arguing over Egyptian versus North for a while. Hmm. And it's a lot of pantheons out there. Right. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I, there's so many, but when I started really thinking about the structure of the story beyond this game and how I want to lay everything out, it's like each mythology fell into place 
almost exactly where it felt like this is the natural time when this should happen. And, and so much about Norsemith is, is isolation. Right? We're, we're in a period of time before the Vikings. So it wasn't a time when it was a very populated area. And because of its lack of population, we're assuming we're sort of positing this is when gods and monsters walked the earth. Right. And then they were suddenly eliminated off the earth. And then people from Europe moved North to Scandinavia and started settling and the Viking culture began and the myths and the stories were sort of passed on. And to them, it was real things that happened just before they got there. Interesting. I mean, to hear Kratos tell it, gods are kind of assholes. So yes. maybe, maybe purging them is the right call. Um, so like you, you mentioned, you know, certain team members being skeptical of the father son approach. Like were there, uh, were there a lot of other instances of resistance to new directions and new ideas and develop? I mean, I'm, you know, I'm sure any any project has got some amount of that kind of strife because I hear making video games is pretty difficult. But like, especially on one that's got you know storied history, a lot of games, but like hard swerve yeah. in practically every way, like setting, tone, so style of storytelling, gameplay, yeah. scope, like everything in this game is different. So, how did that stuff go? As as you guys kind of, it was it was a uh, very difficult right, and uh, it's not because any of them are difficult to work with. It's because they're all passionate fans, right? They love uh, not only what they do, but they love the the franchise, right? And they have very strong opinions on where they believe through their lens the franchise should go. Um, and in a way, it's really good, right? Because it helped me understand and work out and work out how I can help explain things better, work out what I think is too far, what is too little, um, through having to have these kind of battles if you will with each person on the team and you know some people they you know they left they said oh I just, this is too much you know, I just can't do it um and you know that i feel like those are battles i lost right but then the people who stay really kind of engage in the conversation and you know look at every aspect of the game and say you know when it took the jump out i actually was a big complainer about that one right because i was pushing for the camera so eric uh, Williams, again, uh, was the one who had the sobering talk with me of like, look, which one do you want? The camera or the jump? You can't have them both because we're taking on all these other risks, right? You've got to know each one of these things is going to require a lot of work, right? Just to get platforming right with a, a controllable camera, it's going to require a lot of work. But then you're talking about the controllable camera being the no-cut camera. You're talking about the, the combat being completely different and everything being closer. We have to pick our battles. And then you've got you know the companion character who you want to reinvent in a completely different way than anybody's done it. So... Definitely needed to, on my side, let go of certain things and realize that it is it is a two-way street. I'll fight some things and lose, right? The same way that they'll fight some things and they lose. Um, but at the end of the day, everybody, I think, always saw it is for the better. Still, you know, 20, 30% of the team was, I think, silently resistant all the way to the end. You know, I've had people tell me in the last month or two when they finally had the break to play through the whole game, you know, I did not support a lot of the decisions you made but i just sort of put my headphones on and, and, and worked uh i was frustrated i thought you're making a lot of bad decisions and then i played it and i was wrong right and i'm super happy to be wrong uh because it is hard to see how each of the pieces fits together as a whole right and i think the noca camera is a perfect example of i, I couldn't explain it why it was going to be good i could tell them that they provided a sense of immediacy uh, immediacy and a personal connection it, it created that sense of you have to take everything on face value it felt more real and personal but i think those are still just sales words and i'm trying to tell them to actually give them an example you couldn't get it in five minutes you got to play it for like 10 hours and then all of a sudden you're like oh my gosh i get it right it's forcing me to want to keep playing and not in a weird sort of addiction way but in a way that i feel like i'm in the moment and i'm never out of the moment there's a continuity to it yes yeah that's a really good way to say it. There's a continuity. I'm going to totally stop. There's a continuity to <laughs> that it. That one's free. Right. Even when I like take a break and come back to the game, I find myself able to pick it up just instantly. Like for, for a game that has as many systems, as many you know menu options as it does, I can just pick it up and instantly the, the camera is pointing me where I need to go and I just everything comes flowing back in a very natural way. It feels comfortable. Yeah. Right? And there's the... Yeah, there's the Fluid. I, I, I loved what we did with that cinematic camera, but there was a sense of distance because... This camera feels like you, the player. The previous cameras felt like me and the camera guys and the designers. Like, we were showing you what we want to see. Um, and as a player, I don't want that. 
as a player, I want to I want to say, give me the tools. Let me go play around. Right. Let me have agency within this world. As a director, I have a difficult time letting go of control. So I have definitely the internal battles of the gamer versus the director, and and uh, happily the gamer won a lot. Right, and that I had to acknowledge and accept that that there are certain moments that I really want to get, but then there are other moments that it's like I'm okay with letting it go. Like that was the battle between exploration and I. That it wasn't that I disrespected their work and I wanted people to skip it, but I wanted people to appreciate that they found something so massive and it felt like, oh, I found that because I was curious, right? So that there could be those moments where you're at work the next day going, oh, did you find this place? Wait, what? Yeah, yeah, go over here, find this, turn left, do this. Like You can find this whole level. It's amazing. What? I didn't know that, right? That is awesome. That is the experiences I had on the schoolyard when we were talking about Zelda, right? Yep. Link to the past and saying, you know, the bomb will open up a wall and it's just minds blown at that point. I, to me, that is a cool aspect of gaming community is kind of going back to that sense of, did you know you could do this? That's awesome. That's actually a perfect lead into the thing I wanted to ask about next, which is, was it clear from the outset that this was going to be so much bigger than the previous games? Because those were very linear, very story driven and very like tight. You know, those were what, 10 hours, yeah. let's say average. And like, you know, 10 to 15, everything about this game is different and it's all pretty surprising in a, in a really delightful way. But like, I, I think it's how big it is and also how often you deviate from the main path. That is maybe the most surprising thing about it because yeah. God of War has just never been that kind of game. So like, did you know that's what you were doing from the beginning, or did it just grow in size as you? I did. Were per- uh, yeah, I did. I, God of War Two was was one of the bigger games, uh, and I think I'm not certain if that's just like a weird pathology of mine that I just keep pushing people way past what I think is logical. But I kind of have that adage of if you're if you're gonna try to get into space, shoot for the moon. Because even if you don't get all the way to the moon, you're still going to get way higher than if you just shoot for the top of a building, right? And I feel like I don't ever want to shoot for the top of the building. And I remember pitching this game early on to a bunch of people in the studio and one of the environment artists uh, in the break between the pitch, because the pitch was so long that it required multiple bathroom breaks in between. It was like three and a half hours of me just talking. Um, And halfway through, he was like, I said, oh, so what do you think? Oh, it's great. Uh, I don't know what, who else is going to make this for us. How many other studios are we going to get to work on this? Because this is ridiculous. Like, there's no way we're finishing this. I mean, seriously, this is ridiculous. We can't even do the beginning of this game. It's ridiculous. I'm like, don't worry about it, right? And that was what I, I kind of spent most of my time, which was, you know, don't worry about it. This is what we can do. We can take this problem at this problem, and then we can do this. Don't worry. It's not going to be that big. Don't worry, right? I introduced the concept of breaking up exploration and critical path into two teams by saying you know we'll kind of just match like maybe we'll do 10 hours critical path 10 hours exploration you know you know god of war was 17 hours so it's three hours longer it's no big deal right and it's just this like constant soft selling of things where deep down i i I think maybe subconsciously i know i want to make this thing ridiculous i want that moment that i have uh like in in you know, Skyrim, when you've come out of the, the or Oblivion is actually a better example, when you come out of the, the caves and the whole world opens up to you, not because you want to sit here and look at a mini-map and see all the tasks you have, but the sense of possibility, the sense of dwarfing the player in this sort of larger, fantastic world. And, and Norse myth just gives you that opportunity to feel like not only is Midgard massive, but there are nine realms including Midgard, all out there. And it's like the possibilities are just endless. And that sense of curiosity being rewarded in the exploration was in the previous God of War games. We had a little bit of it. The first game had that fantastic architect's temple on top of Kronos' back. Spoilers for anybody who hasn't played it. Um, But it, it wasn't, I think, even big enough. And when you look at that, you're like, all right, we could go bigger than that. And I don't think I went that far on two. Three was a bit more contained, and Ascension had a lot of great stuff in it, but we never really kind of explored saying, we don't want to make an open world game, but what if we made a game that was really big and it had the sense of an expansive world and you were surprised by that, right? Like it was a big deal to hide this from people for as long as possible so that when you do it, you, when you play the game, you you think, I know God of War. Just like you said, it's still linear, had a little bit of a few steps off the path. You'd find some of these things, but imagine that like, jaw-dropping moment when you realize this is so much bigger than anyone ever let on, right? And that I totally lied to you, right? <laughs> and 
I had hoped it wouldn't turn out like the whole con thing where everybody get mad, right? That we'd hide this from them. But I think for me, there's so much of this game that if you experience it for the first time without any spoilers, any information, it's just amazing, right? Like it's that, it's the feeling I had when I saw some of the great films uh, when I was a kid, these fantasy films that sort of were formative for me, that it was like everything was a surprise, you know, like Blade Runner was just ridiculous, you know, alien, aliens, like these, these movies that, that every step of the way, like, just surprised me. Like, it's like imagining seeing Sixth Sense. If somebody told you in advance what was going on, it wouldn't be the same, right? That movie is requiring you to actually experience everything fresh. Sure. Was it <clears throat> was it tough from a storytelling perspective to find that balance between, you know, kind of linear, uh, expedient storytelling and allowing people to go off the path? Because, like, that's something I struggle with as a player where you've got, like, you know, you may have this main through line that's pretty propulsive, you know, like in this case, like father and son are on the run, like they're, you know, there are forces after them that they don't want to stick around for. Right. But then also allowing people to go off and like, oh, you can go free this dragon if you want or like explore these mines or like, yeah. you know, like urgency versus kind of more lackadaisical, like just ability to roam. Like, is it tough to find that? Yes. Find, find where that should be? For all games, I think it's tough. Um, it was very deliberate in the beginning to ensure that their goal was simple and personal but without a clock right there's no doomsday clock there there's nothing's going to happen if they don't get there in a set a period of time um the 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 people looking for them was that that sort of kick in the pants right to get you out the call to action the call to adventure really i guess in the sort of traditional hero's journey without necessarily putting the stakes in the world of saying the world is going to end from this um and then the trick part was getting the player to feel okay about the exploration and finding the right way to talk to them about it. Like finding Atreus's words and Kratos's words to actually make it okay. And we struggled with that. That was a hard one to say. Sometimes it would be, Oh, mom would want us to go explore. And then everybody yeah. would say, Oh, I, I, I felt like I couldn't continue on the path. Cause he, he said, mom would want them to explore. And we we're like, Oh wow. Wow. You guys are really listening to us. Okay. So then finding the right verbiage. Yeah, that didn't actually occur to me until you just said it, that like the, most of these sides, from what I've seen so far, most of these these little side jaunts are framed in the context of like formative experiences for the boy, you know, yeah. teaching lessons and, and, and stuff like that. And so. that we get stronger for the journey. Right. So that the journey will be long, right? Uh, and it was very intentional that the mountain was the goal. So that everywhere you're at, you can look, you know, a couple degrees to the right or to the left, and you will probably see where your goal is. So it's never requiring uh, an in-game like dot somewhere because I was absolutely wanting to have no HUD. My favorite way to play the game is in an immersive mode, which is turning everything off, right? Because what it does, it, it's sort of a, a very extreme version of what our map does, which is it forces you to appreciate the environment, to actually kind of go around and pay attention to what's around you instead of just looking at a little dot and following the dot, right? I've never been a fan of that, but it's something that some people want. So I totally am fine putting that in the game, but I wanted that option to be able to turn a lot of stuff off. The map, I was very specific in saying, I don't want one-to-one, right? I want the map to be an implication, right? That says, this is generally what you're seeing, but you still got to work, right? That this was not a period of time in which Google Maps was around. Nobody had that accurate of maps. So it sort of required you to memorize or at least pay attention, ah, there's that landmark. Okay, I get it. Yeah, when the Thor statue is over to the right, we need to go to the left kind of thing. That That's sort of paying attention. So it puts a little bit of weight onto the player, but I think in a good way, right? It's the way that Breath of the Wild had that sense that you look around and you're actually seeing these gigantic landmarks. And, you know, one of the first things I did was turn off the minimap in that game because I just wanted to explore. I wanted to discover these things and I wanted to get familiar so that when I came back around to a familiar location, I remembered it because, oh, that's where the, the, the sort of broken down cathedral is, right? Oh, yeah, okay, the cliff's right next to that. Uh, that felt way more personal, right, that I connected to the world. And right? more about developing a sense of place than just a list of, like, icons on a map? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, the, we're doing world building and storytelling and everything. You're always meeting people who are talking about the world and this sense that you don't just get stuck in following a compass all the time, right? Which I... You know, I know it's important. I know many people actually prefer to use the compass to navigate around. Sometimes it's because they just don't want to wander around and figure these things out. And that's great, right? And that's why I like that there's options, right? That's the key, I think, to any game experience is saying there's no one right answer, right? Like the the control scheme is a perfect example. During the playtests, you know, people would be very disappointed 
that the controls were on the shoulder buttons. They'd be like, oh, I'm a God of War player. I want to play on the face buttons. And we're like, oh, that's okay. Well, but try it out on the hair. No, no, no. They try it out for a little bit. I hate it, right? It's terrible. You know, you ruined it. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Well, let's put it in that we can let them switch between. And once we finally got it in, we found a lot of playtesters would play about an hour that way and then go, hmm, I realized my mistake. It's better on the shoulder buttons, right? And they need that option. Otherwise, they're just going to be like, no, you screwed it up, right? They need to be able to play through that. Some people might continue to play on the face buttons. I just find it very difficult to use hovering over the camera and then jump over and to do all your combos, whereas this is just kind of the natural position. It's just not the way people have played before. So they got to get used to it, which is why, you know, the game's introduction is very long, right? A lot of people kept saying, you need to get to the open world, if you will, in 45 minutes, right? And I get people pulling me in a room and saying, so we got to get rid of all this stuff. 45 minutes, that's all you got. That's all you got. Best 60 minutes, and then people are going to quit your game. And I was like, okay, cool, but what if we didn't do that? <laughs> if you remember great science fiction movies from the 70s, these were not, I mean, it's the 60s, like uh, 2001. It's a perfect example of, like, you don't have to hurry there. Like, it's not always a fast sort of quick edit to get there. Like, what if we took our time, but what if we entertained them during that time? What if we engaged them? What if they cared about each step of the way? Then you can take your time, right? Like, there's a moment later in the game, you know, you haven't gotten there, so I'm not going to tell you specifically about it, but it's a moment in which everybody kept saying, we should just fast travel here. We should just fast travel here. And it's like, no, the journey is the experience, right? It'll take 20 minutes to go through this thing, but that 20 minutes is well spent because you're going to, go through the steps, and I explain them the emotional beats I want them to go through. They're like, nah, no, I just want to fast travel, right? I'm like, you may want to fast travel, and that's awesome, but I don't want to fast travel, and I want people to kind of have this experience, right? And we went back and forth uh, on this one for a while, and then finally when it went in, I think he realized, like, he's like, oh, no, this is totally right. Like, it feels right, but looking at it in its raw form where everything was janky and we were just really crudely laying it out, it's hard if you don't believe in the idea to see that crappy presentation and say, yeah, yeah, that'll totally work, right? So he was right to fight it that whole way, even though it frustrated me to no end. It's all about, I mean, it's kind of building tension and then release, right? Yeah. But people don't know what they're getting until they get there, so it's something yes. you can kind of only appreciate in hindsight. It's true. Um, Real quick, uh, we're almost out of time. Uh, you mentioned the, the immersive mode. Like, I haven't been brave enough to turn that on yet because the enemies in this game are incredibly happy to mess you up yes. from off camera, which is like kind of the opposite of the. I, you know, I feel like most most games with group combat kind of follow the action movie trope of like, well, there's twenty guys, but only one of them is going to wade in at a time right. and fight you. But like this game, they are all over the place and they are all hitting you simultaneously. Yeah. Like, did that feel like a risky move or a bold choice to, to just kind of open it up and let everybody come at you all, at all times? We we definitely went back and forth. Uh, the old God of War combat system kind of had that queued up system where each one would, you know, sort of attack one at a time or they would have all these sets of rules to ensure that uh, you wouldn't get overwhelmed unless we wanted you to get overwhelmed at that specific moment. Because the camera is so close here what we are trying to highlight, what we are trying to sort of make people role play, if you will, is battle awareness for Kratos. The idea that there is no standing still, that you always have to be in motion and that you always have to keep an eye on who you're fighting, but also who's moving. That's why Atreus is so important. He's the one calling out another two revenants on the left, you know, behind you. Like he's giving you really good information that you don't need any of that on-screen HUD stuff. It's it's harder, right? Uh, and because I've been playing the game for years uh uh, I think for me, it's sort of become second nature, but I definitely think it's probably hardcore for the first time playing to turn on that mode because we, you know, even though I was not the originator of the health bars, right, and everybody thought I would be the resistor against them, they were hesitant to pitch this to me for a while and they introduced it and we went into a meeting where everybody expected me to freak out, right, and just start throwing chairs or something like Jerry Bruckheimer. Um, but it turned out, I was like, no, this is amazing. Like, you guys, this is so smart. This introduces the strategy, the tactics that we've been talking about. And we've been trying to visualize what was visualized in the health bars with, you know, blood and wounds and, and, and stumbling. But there is no consistent language. Nobody understands that, oh, 50% health means 50% health to everybody. But limping with the left leg while hunching the right shoulder doesn't mean 50% health to anybody, right? So... That immediately created this amazing sort of like strategy that we've never had in a God of War game. God of War game was jump in the fray and just go, right? And that's fine, but it gets boring after a while. This lets you really assess and go, level four revenant over there who has 25% health, but I've also got a level three uh, heavy 
And if they hit me once, I'm losing a lot of my health. I need to just forget about the Revenant right now and just stay mobile and really focus on this character or try to freeze, you know, the Revenant if I can actually get her stunned, you know. So I think that level of strategy, super important. And that level, uh, that to me was when it really clicked, I think, in our combat system, that it was feeling like a risk that everybody was mobbing you and attacking you, but you couldn't make any strategic decisions. Once you introduce the strategic decisions, now forcing the player to maintain a mobility, right, was the the next big thing. We introduced that, like, uh, off-screen indicator that let you know when people are attacking. But to be honest, I I don't think you need it if you just start getting into that, what I think we were hoping people to get into, which is just pay attention to what's around you. You always kind of roll, and you always kind of survey the horizon so that, you know, you take somebody out, but then once you're taking that last hit, you're immediately rolling off to the left or the right if there's no enemy over to the left because you've not seen anybody move over there, so... Definitely taxes the brain a lot, but I think for me that's the most interesting aspect of the new combat system. Sure. Uh, so I wanted to touch on one more thing. This is maybe a big question to throw at you with like two minutes left, but uh, you mentioned you know like five plus years of work, yeah. you know people being there at three in the morning and stuff like that. I feel like labor in game development has been kind of a hot topic of late. Uh, like, do you have any any thoughts on how you guys handled things in retrospect now that you guys are on the other side of it? Like, how did you? Yeah. handle that and i mean it's it's always a, a tricky thing for us we we really we depend on the passion of the people there right when i was talking about what our studio used to be this idea of my second week at the studio i was at the studio three in the morning burning a tgs demo disc because i cared not because anybody asked me to be there in fact there was probably 25 people there and none of them needed to be there there needed to be one person there just to burn the disc and we were all staying because we were so excited when we finished god of war 2 we stayed until like two or three in the morning burning, you know, gold candidate discs. And then instead of just playing for like two minutes to test that it worked, we'd play for like an hour and a half and just everybody standing around watching it be played because we cared. We were really into it. And I think this is a similar thing that while we go through our ups and downs of people's doubts, I think at its heart, when everybody starts seeing that what we're making is something special, it just feels like everybody puts so much into it. The first level, you know, it was completely re-arted even though nobody asked for it that they were just like, oh, I want to redo one of the trees. And then all of a sudden, three weeks later, I have a producer running in my office and yelling at me like, why did you have them redo the art of everything? We're never going to finish this game. And I'm like, I did it. What are you talking? What's happening? Right? And then I go find out that they just weren't happy with it. Right? And it's that level of perfection, that level of drive that, you know, I guess the outsider will say, oh, everybody works really hard. But it's like most people, they're doing it because they love this. They're doing it because it means something. And the entertainment industry is very different, right? When people are at their, their their jobs that are not related, I think, to being judged by the entire public on its end result, uh, it's a very different thing to say, like, oh, I, didn't, I don't stay late filling out these reports because you're not being judged by the world, right? Like what we put out there, the entire world judges us of whether or not we've worked hard enough, right? So the same people that probably say, I really sympathize with you guys, and, and that sucks that you guys have to work hard, are the same people who are going to tell you, get good. Why don't you guys work harder? This game sucks. Why isn't it good as Red Dead, right? And it's like, it is a weird thing, but it's pervasive throughout all of entertainment. Like, you look at people in movies, it's the same thing. Nobody wants to put out a bad movie. Everybody's working their butt off trying to make something great. And it's even more painful when it's not great, right? I mean, I worked on my share of really crappy games, right? And that isn't to say that people didn't work hard and they didn't put everything they had into it. It was just bad, right? There's no way to put lipstick on that pig, man. It was bad games, and when you get an opportunity to potentially work on something that's good, there's a lot of people in this business that are going to put everything they can into that. Yeah, I had uh, just real quick, I had one moment last night in the mines where you, you get to the end and there are these massive crystals growing out of the ground. And oh, I, yeah. I, if I if I saw what I think I saw, like it looked like one of them had been whittled down as if someone had been mining it. Uh, yeah. And I looked at that and I was like, you know what, I bet some artists just put that in there because of course that's what would happen in that mine. Like yep. it's just this little... Totally missable detail, but if you see it, it just adds like a, a tiny little bit more. They would love to hear that because yeah. they put so much into it. They ask so many questions. They challenge me so many times to say like, well, why would this be here? Why would this be yeah, here? Yeah, it's great to see. What was the logic? Like, yeah. They are so great at like, that. That's, that's the, the number one thing I like to hear is when, when people looked at something and thought about why would it be this way? You know, yeah. like what would the people who lived here have done and, and stuff like that. that yeah. Not of, only the engineering, but what's the history? Yeah. Just like you're saying, what, what, who are the people that lived here? Totally. What did they do before? It's yeah. awesome. Cool. Love that. All right, we're just about out of time. Corey Barlog, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is yeah. wonderful. Congratulations to you and the team on all of the acclaim and uh, oh, the thank critical you. praise. Seems, thank you. Seems, seems that the five years have paid off. Ah, thank you very much. Thank you. 